Hello, 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 and welcome to the Health and Wellness Connection TV show, guys. I'm your host, Dr. Barry, here to hopefully give you some awesome information regarding the health and wellness news that are in the media today. Now, before we move any further, guys, we must give thanks and, uh, you know, just, 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 you know, we just, just want to show our appreciation for Afro Vibes Television for kind of creating this environment for us to kind of bring you this awesome information regarding you know, the health and wellness uh, news, especially from an African perspective, because we want to really make sure we're breaking that down as well, because, you know, a lot of times you don't see that perspective in the media, so luckily this is one of the few avenues where you can see that if you are so inclined. Now, again, um, I'm your host again, Dr. Barry. I'm, again, a licensed emergency medicine physician, but I'm also a health and wellness physician who's uh, counseled to work with many individuals to help them lose weight and achieve their fitness goals. Now, Clearly, this show is designed to kind of bring you some of those things that, you know, I discuss with some of my patients, as well as some of the more pressing, pertinent, health-related information, and sometimes not health, so not so health-related, but we try to keep it fun. And uh, we hope to bring that to you, you know, every week, and that's what we're doing this week. So, again, we're going to talk about some of the things that have really been in the media as of late. And, of course, you know, COVID is always on the agenda, as it's been for a while now. But the great news is that we are, you know, making some headway, and it looks like we're moving in the right direction. Now, that being said, you know, we all have to break down some of the numbers of some of the countries out here that are kind of going through it. And uh, there are some that are getting surges, unfortunately. But um, a lot of the countries, especially the United States, they are appreciating some significant decreases in the new infections and even deaths uh, that we're seeing uh, as of late. So, um, real quick, you know, top five, you know, hasn't really changed so much for the past few months. It's kind of the same deal. So, I'm going to briefly kind of go over those numbers. USA is still number one as it has led pretty much this entire time um, outside the first few months when China was in the lead. Um, that being said, some would argue the Chinese numbers are not real. But again, that's a whole different discussion. That being said, USA is still number one, still averaging about 30 to 40,000 cases per day. Um, total number of cases total in the U.S. is 30 million. Um, new deaths, about 800 deaths per day. Now, Brazil is one of those countries that is actually surging during these summer periods. Now, in the Brazilian region, uh, which is in South America, they typically are going into their winter period as, at this point. So they're, they're not there yet, but they're approaching. It's getting cooler, kind of like their fall, if you will. So many health experts in Brazil actually predicted that they would actually see a surge. And, you know, given some of the... the, the um, the really ineffectual leadership shown by the Brazilian uh, uh, government has really made this kind of pandemic far worse down in the Brazilian nation. So as a result, you know, they've had a lot of issues and they're seeing now these surges that have really been uncharacteristic for other nations in the similar in the in the, in the region. So, you know, it's kind of a, a glaring failure on the Brazilian government's uh, part as far as handling this pandemic. But there are a lot of local municipalities in Brazil that are trying to do their best to you know, uh, kind of take up or I should say, um, you know, make up for some of the inadequacies of the federal government down there. That being said, their numbers also um, going up. They have about a thousand new deaths per day, um, about 42,000 uh, new cases per day. So they're right there with the United States, despite them being significantly smaller than the United States. So India's number three. Um, they're also on the downward trend, 24,000 or so cases per day, about 100 or so deaths per day. So they are doing very well for a nation of over 1.3 billion people. So uh, hats off to India for doing their part to help keep this pandemic under control in their region. Russia, number four, about four million total cases. So Russia, you know, was actually overall um, not as heavily affected than some of the European and, and other uh, North American and South American nations. 
but they definitely have had uh, their fair share of, of people with the virus. That being said, um, Russia is also one of the few nations that were really early with their uh, version of the vaccine, which later on showed to be fairly effective, almost 92% effectivity as far as getting people immunity to the COVID virus. So, you know, very, um, you know, I think, um, admirable approach to the virus that they took and uh, made a lot of risky maneuvers, but it seems like it's helped them kind of avoid a lot of significant morbidity and mortality from COVID-19. Uh, they're averaging about 9,000 so cases per day, about three to 400 deaths per day as well. So definitely still not out of the woods, but uh, for the nation of 145 million people, they're actually doing a pretty good job as keeping the virus uh, numbers low for their population. And number five is UK. Uh, they also have been having a lot of issues with the uh, uh, the fall and the winter season. They had a significantly high level of uh, new cases, uh, really went through in the UK, and they're still up going through it. But there are, you know, concerns that, you know, despite the vaccine push and everything else, that there may be some mutations and different changes that are making it still uh, an issue as far as new infections and new threats from the COVID-19 in the UK. So the UK is definitely having the issues with the with the um, with the uh, COVID-19 uh, situation here. So let's uh, keep monitoring them. Um, they are definitely one of the more aggressive nations in the European region as far as lockdowns and really restricting people's movements. So we'll hopefully those movements combined with, you know, and continued vaccinations amongst the populace will be, you know, will bode well for the overall outcome for the, um, the UK region. Also, before we leave the UK, I want to give shots out to my people in the UK. The UK is a big uh, uh, area where the shows is, is being watched. So I want to appreciate you guys. Much love to you guys. Please tell your friends out there. You know, we're probably going to come out there one of these days once COVID restrictions and travel kind of calms down and, you know, do like a meet and greet. But that being said, I want to thank you guys for uh, tuning in as well all across the globe. But ultimately, um, you know, we're here to try to, you know, get everybody information that they can use and uh, hopefully give them good direction if they want to do more research on their own. So, all right, so that's enough about um, the COVID-19 numbers. Let's talk a all right, guys, another news in the media. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has recently granted emergency use authorization for the Q COVID-19 test. So this is a over-the-counter test, right, designed to be purchased at your local pharmacy. So you should be able to get it in your local kind of neighborhood, uh, Walgreens, Walmart, or wherever you live, and uh, where they sell these kind of goods. And this is supposed to be able for to allow individuals to go in there and screen themselves for COVID-19. Um, this is going to be the first test that's going to be available to consumers without a prescription. So can you guys envision the awesome COVID parties that are about to result from this? <laughs> no, but in the, in the reality is this, you know, COVID screening has been something that's been actually been pushed heavily in various, you know, avenues from, you know, work to travel to food, everything else. So, um, you know, getting this at home test, I think is going to be a good idea because it's going to get people access to these tests if they're so inclined. Now, one thing I will say is that Screening patients is a very common complaint when people who come into the emergency rooms or go into their doctor's offices who may have been exposed. And, you know, a lot of times I think these things can be done safely in the comfort of one's home without kind of going into the whole emergency room or going to a doctor's office, you know, to, to get such a test. Now, that being said, the test does require a little bit of technical skill. The current test does require a Q-tip being pushed right to the farthest parts of the of the nose, which can be very uncomfortable if not done correctly. Well, if done correctly, it's still uncomfortable, but it can be more dangerous if done incorrectly, I should say. So um, it's believed that these uh, home tests will be a little less intrusive, probably less accurate, but will still give some information if for those who are curious. So 
be on the lookout for those home tests, guys. Um, if you're looking to have a, a, a some sort of fancy process where you can screen patients or people before they enter your premises, your business, your home, this may be the way it can be done. And it's FDA approved, so ideally, it should mean the test should be of a higher quality. Those of you guys who are importing tests from you know various foreign manufacturers, uh, you know, have probably seen that those tests aren't the most accurate. Um, so hopefully, you know, some standardization will be provided with this new test is being approved and uh, we may get more accurate, you know, home screening tools. So let's see what that looks like and we're going to keep monitoring that, guys. So a recent study out of Italy shows that there may potentially be a actual link between your BMI, which is your body mass index, your age, and sex. And all these may be interlinked as far as how you respond to the COVID-19 vaccine. This is very interesting stuff, guys, and we're going to talk about it. Now, the reality is this. We've known that the vaccine that's being created by the various manufacturers that exist out there, that some people do respond better than others. This is actually also seen in the COVID-19 infection itself. Some people get the infection, clear it without any issue. Other people get the infection and get critically ill, requiring critical management in an ICU setting. So we've found some reasons behind that. BMI has been the greatest one. In other words, obesity has been shown to be linked with more complications with COVID-19 infections and so forth. So it's always been kind of seen that, you know, somehow your BMI and your COVID response is, has been linked. That being said, it's never been really fully documented in a research setting. It's most of the times they see it in kind of general observation studies where they look at a lot of people who've been hospitalized and they look at some of the data as far as their characteristics, and then they make their assumptions from that. But now, a new study out of Italy now show, has shown that there could be some correlation as far as how you respond to the vaccine. And this can actually, actually give us some insight as to how the body, you know, or how the, your BMI can affect your immune response, in particular when it's referencing or when it's reacting to a COVID-19-related infection or vaccination. So this is actually, I think, a big deal. Um, now, this study was fairly small. It only involved uh, just a little under, a little over 200 people, 158 women, 90 men. They looked at people who received a, uh, a mRNA vaccine similar to the one given in the Pfizer vaccine that we see uh, given everywhere. And they looked at the people that got two vaccine, got two shots, meaning the first shot and the following booster. And so they did this, um, and the booster was given 21 days after the first, so that for those who are actually interested in that regimen. So they did these this vaccine, uh, vaccinations. Then they went back and looked at their immune response and actually who formed antibodies quickly, more successfully, and kind of looked at how their immune, you know, their immune system responded to the vaccinations. And it was found that the individuals who responded best, meaning that they formed antibodies, they were very effective, and also they were um, quickly created those immune responses and created a nice amount of antibodies, giving them increased immunity, were actually young women. So young women and also young women with with normal BMIs, meaning a body mass index less than 25. So those people had the best response, meaning that they were likely going to, you know, form antibodies more quickly and efficiently. And likely than not, even if they had COVID-19, they would probably be able to combat it and clear it more efficiently. Now, those who did the worst, meaning they had the worst immune response, meaning a poor immune response, low antibodies being created, and potentially could result in them having still increased susceptibility to COVID-19 despite their vaccinations were older obese men. So older men, um, BMI greater than 30, um, you know, they tend to do the worst. So it's really shown that 
you know, obesity can have a direct effect on one's ability to fight an infection, particularly by making your immune system weaker. So that by itself honestly should be enough evidence for anyone to say, you know what, I want to make sure that I'm giving myself the best chance to fight infection. And that entails, you know, watching your weight, making sure you try to, you know, reduce your BMI, eat healthy, stay active, because that's really the best treatment for any kind of ailment, preventative health. And it's another study just illustrating the importance of obesity and uh, helping reduce that in order to keep your you know, immune system stronger. So again, not that we need another reason on this show, we talk about the dangers of obesity ad nauseum, but now we're seeing almost a direct link to um, one's immune system and one's waistline. So guys, focus on that. We're gonna have a lot, obviously more data on you know, how to lose weight, other tips and tricks and things like that. So please stay tuned on that. But yes, another study showing obesity weakens your immune system, guys. So let's work on, you know, watching our health and weight and wellness. So the nation of Norway has recently paused their recent administration of their COVID-19 vaccination that was created by the company AstraZeneca. Now, this vaccine was one of the later entrants into the vaccine race, but it's also shown to be fairly effective in, uh, know, conferring antibody response to those who receive it. But that being said, people have been actually shown or there's been a link that they're potentially associating with this vaccine and blood clots. So uh, recent, um, you know, uh, kind of a survey of people who received the vaccine has shown an increased number of people getting blood clots and uh, cerebral hemorrhages or what we call head bleed. So quite concerning findings there. Because of this, they decided to halt uh, the vaccine there in, uh, in Denmark, just as so you can see what are all the potential risks involved. So, you know, it's, it's concerning on that end. And, you know, these vaccines are still, you know, in their, their initial kind of phase. So there are potentially some, you know, risks that aren't being fully kind of uh, known of yet. And these things will start to show themselves as these rollouts get bigger and bigger. So this uh, vaccine uh, has been paused, AstraZeneca potential variant. So those who are in Norway, you know, you may not be able to get this vaccine if you're interested in that. But, you know, some of the other ones, particularly particularly the Pfizer and the Moderna are, are still, and the Johnson & Johnson, I should say, and the Sputnik, which is the Russian variant vaccine, are all still actually having fairly um, a good safety profile. So, again, it's a little hiccup there on the AstraZeneca front. But, again, I think that's being evaluated, and hopefully that will be rectified if such a true association does exist in a future vaccine, uh, you know, versions. Now, one thing that's been very controversial that we touched on briefly on the last episode was that masks are back in the controversy, you know, topic space, if you if you will. So, as you guys, I'm sure, familiar, as we discussed, some states have went out and stated, we don't need masks anymore, we're back to normal, 100% wide open, despite the numbers that we're seeing on the COVID front. Particularly, the states of Texas and Mississippi have really been full frontal with their aggressive push to reopen everything and kind of remove the mask requirements and get back to normal. Now, many health experts are saying this is a bit premature. Now, of course, we're in a new administration now, no longer under the Trump administration here in America. So before, when health experts would say something, they would be kind of ridiculed and laughed at. Now, with the Biden administration, there's some belief that there's actually people listening to the scientists. So, you know, clearly when, um, you know, these states kind of went forward with this aggressive demasking uh, push many government officials now have expre expressed their displeasure uh, all starting with 
Joe Biden. Now, President Joe Biden, I should say, a Democrat, he actually has re-emphasized the importance of continual mask usage, and he's asked actually all Americans to continue wearing masks for the first 100 days in office. Now, he's saying that, you know, we'll see how it goes. He's going to potentially extend it if things keep, you know, if things start to get worse as far as new infections or new, you know, dangers are being appreciated. So, you know, Biden is very upset with these states that are actually pushing to demask their uh, citizens. And uh, he even uh, went as far and said that it's a big mistake. And he said that in response to a bunch of reporters who were kind of asking questions regarding the issue, he stated that, you know, we're, as a nation, we're making progress. But the last thing we need is Neanderthals thinking that in the meantime, everything is fine. Take your mask off and forget it. It still matters, he said. So, you know, Biden not mincing words, going as far as calling, uh, you know, these state, these governors, particularly of Texas and Mississippi, Neanderthals for not, you know, really appreciating the scientists. Now, that being said, many um, people who disagree with the president would say that, you know, the economies are suffering in various states and this push to reopen is more an economic one. So, you know, it's definitely, like I said, a very contentious back and forth between now the uh, federal government and some of these state governments. Before, during the Trump era, you know, the federal government was also lackadaisical and not really pushing for anything in particular. So this kind of fit into the groove of these states who were actually, you know, considering the vaccine or the whole COVID issue not a big deal. So now the government has changed. There's a more, you know, concerted effort from the federal side to ensure that states are doing what they can to minimize the, the spread of the COVID vaccine, including mask usage and other uh, guidelines as laid out by the CDC. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But yes, the gloves are starting to come off. The insults are starting to fly. And uh, we're about to enter into the Biden. Well, we're in the Biden era. And we're about to enter to, you know, how that plays out. Because, um, you know, a lot of people are getting antsy as far as some of these new regulations. And we're going to talk about actually that as far as what's causing, I think, some of the things we're seeing on the scientific side. Why people are getting more restless you know, mental illness levels are skyrocketing. Uh, we talked about insomnia being a huge issue. We did a whole show on insomnia a few episodes back, guys. So go back to the archives if you want to learn more about that. But again, people are getting corona fatigue. One of the big uh, terms now being coined in the recent article published by the BBC is called corosomia. <laughs> corosomnia, I should say. Now, this whole corosomnia issue is really a, a phenomenon that's being kind of described by uh, many health professionals. This one actually was more in the UK, but it's kind of obviously I think can be applied to most uh, countries and most um, um, governments. Now the thing is that people are seeing, or there's, there's now a concern that insomnia is one of the biggest issues that is kind of coming out of this whole pandemic. People are more anxious, people are more restless. Like I said, people are watching TV, people are not working, some people are working from home. They're just kind of, you know, the sleep-wake cycle is completely screwed up. The news is stressing them out. And as a result, people are finding it difficult to get some sleep, to, to relax and get into that meditative sleep. Now, we're not going to go into the whole detail of insomnia and what it is and all that. Go back to the old show if you want that information. But the bottom line is that insomnia is getting worse and is resulting in a lot of mental health issues. And uh, it's causing a lot of trouble out here. So um, there's been a push to kind of make people aware of their issues related to how the coronavirus and everything associated with it is leading to more case of insomnia. It's believed that many countries are seeing spikes of 10 to 15 percent in the rise of, of, of their insomnia cases in their population. Um, for example, 
Um, it was observed in, in, uh, in, in a survey that was done in Greece um, and Italy that nearly 40% of respondents in May showed that they had insomnia. And we talked about the, the uh, survey done in the previous episode about the one done in the UK where they interviewed students and um, alarming percentage of them, I think 40 plus percent, also were um, considered clinically having insomnia. So insomnia is a real big deal. It's starting to get a lot of recognition now. Uh, one thing that we stated before, a lot of treatments are available, natural and unnatural, but the fact that it's more uh, appreciated, I think will result in more awareness and hopefully more government-sponsored treatment options and more affordable options made, made available. So, yes, guys, chorosomnia is a thing and, uh, you know, something that we have to be vigilant about to help make sure we minimize its effect on our mental health because despite all the drama, we got to stay focused on the potential uh, future, uh, you know, free of all this uh, mess. If, if it exists, who knows, but I think we stay focused on the potentials. We can, you know, get close to it and hopefully be happy with the result. Okay, guys, so in another segment here, we want to talk about some of the recent um, subjects or some of the recent uh, issues that have developed regarding a case um, illustrating some of the concerns of racism in medicine. Now, we talk a lot about some of the different cases that pop up here and there, but, you know, there's some cases that really kind of stand out that really illustrate some of the difficulties for many minority clinicians that are in the country. And this is a, when I refer to the country, I'm talking about the United States here in this particular segment. Now, first things first, minority physicians are severely underrepresented when it comes to available clinicians in the populace. It's believed that according to the um, AAMC, which is the American Academy, American Academy of Medical Colleges, um, it's believed that 5% of the uh, physicians practicing are of African American descent or black um, it's believed that 5.8% of those practicing physicians are of Hispanic origin. 56% of current physicians practicing are of white or Caucasian origin. Um, so for that reason, it's believed that, um, you know, definitely given the population of African Americans or black people here in the United States, you know, hovering anywhere between 12 to 14%, um, you know, the black physicians being only at 5% indicates a very severe underrepresentation of physicians in United States. Now, that being said, you know, many people have seen this and has related this to the in or proof, you should say, uh, of the existence of racism in medicine because of the, uh, many believe, a concerted effort to, um, um, to reduce or, or minimize the, the numbers of black physicians. Now, of course, uh, that is kind of theory and hearsay. There's no real evidence yet to say that. But many people are saying that because there's so few. So Dr. Aisha Corey was a physician who was recently removed from her faculty position at Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine shortly after she led a classroom discussion about racism in medicine. This occurred apparently a, a year ago. She had a discussion amongst her and some med students about racism in medicine. In these discussions, she apparently relayed some of her personal issues she had with racism during her training and, and so forth, and uh, apparently things that happened during this discussion apparently ruffled some feathers. As a result, apparently she was uh, put through some issues she claimed she was, you know, uh, had, to, had to deal with some microaggressions, various dramatic situations, to the point where um, she felt that she was not being respected, and uh, as a result, she ended up um, leaving and was removed from her position. Now, many people um, at the school were very disheartened by her removal. Um, it was believed that um, you know she was beloved by her students, 
And so many people were very upset. And so as a result, it, rele- it led to a lot of controversy there at the school where she was talking about, where, so where she was teaching at. And uh, it kind of showed a glaring example of how, you know, a teacher trying to relate to future doctors about the concerns of racism in her medical, you know, experience, medical practice, has now potentially resulted in her current practice being, you know, negatively affected and her losing her her livelihood, or at least her current livelihood, because of what many allege is racism in medicine. So it just kind of illustrates how, you know, the dangers and the kind of concerning issues that many, you know, black minority physicians find themselves when trying to deal with racism because of, you know, a lot of the issues that are still existing today. Now, um, it's concerning in this particular episode situation because, again, the idea of her leading the discussion amongst her students was to somehow improve, you know, the relationships between, uh, you know, the knowledge base between various uh, clinicians and the students, as well as, you know, helping people understand some of the different cultural differences that probably exist um, that can lead to some of these issues that we see among clinicians as far as not being aware of some of the glaring issues as it relates to race and other cultural uh, differences, you know, in their practices. And we're actually going to show an example of that in our very next story. So um, you're going to see how that how that makes sense. But either way, um, this story is very unique because it showed that a female clinician who was well-respected, loved by her peers, um, started a discussion on racism in medicine and lost her job because of it. And that itself, I think, is a glaring example of how, you know, minority physicians are you know, very nervous about really kind of talking about some of the issues that they face and deal with because of the potential ramifications, including loss of livelihood. So I think it's a something that we're going to keep focusing on. You know, the court, the case is still um, in courts now. Obviously, she's she's suing the school for what she feel was what she feels was wrongful termination, and uh, you know they're going back and forth now. And you know we don't have all the details here, obviously, but again, the optics are looking quite poor for this uh, institution. So again, we're going to keep following this uh, whole situation and uh, we'll let you know what happens. But again, it just shows that, you know, simply leading a podcast or leading a um, a discussion about racism can lead to racism. So (laughs) sounds unfortunate, but that's the reality. All right, guys. So the next story I want to talk about, which is also similarly linked, is that there was a um, recent podcast, and that's kind of why I keep saying podcast, because this has actually been on my mind. Now, we talked about racism in medicine and how, you know, there's a concern that there's a lot of physicians who are practicing who are not really aware of, or of some of the race, the, the, the issues regarding race and, 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 and health, healthcare. I know we've talked here a lot about how uh, many, uh, you know, minorities, especially African-Americans, Latinos, have poor outcomes. They tend uh, not to do as well uh, when, when presenting with similar uh, medical problems than their Caucasian counterparts. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of systemic issues that are causing that as well as other issues. But um, there's definitely, I think, a concern that within the actual medical infrastructure that, you know, there's inferior care being delivered to those who are not, um, you know, who are, who are, who are minority uh, patients. So, and so as a result, uh, there's been a push uh, from the medical side to try to educate uh, clinicians and try to discuss some of these potential racial disparities that and figure out some explanations as to why these disparities exist. Now, um, during this whole kind of, you know, back and forth that 
goes on between doctors and clinicians. Um, a recent podcast was put out. Um, this was actually put out by JAMA. We call it the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, a large journal that, um, you know, very popular in the medical community, discussing a lot of the latest research in various medical topics. Now, this uh, podcast that was put on by the JAMA was a small 16-minute podcast, number one, that was designed to discuss structural racism in the U.S. healthcare system. So imagine, guys, a bunch of clinicians decided we're going to talk about structural racism in the U.S. healthcare system, and it's only going to be 16 minutes. <laughs> so that was that was a red flag for me when I was like, 16 minutes? That's the kind of a... <laughs> Most commercials can barely be done in 60 minutes. So you're going to do a whole show about structural racism in the United States. That shows that the, maybe the motivation really wasn't genuine. But going forward, now the, what was the kicker was that when they released this podcast, which came out on February 23rd, it's now been taken down after the backlash, but it just the whole kind of you know timeline is a little bit funny. So once they put this podcast, 60-minute podcast about racism in the U.S. healthcare system, the, the promo, or how they kind of led with the, the show was, um, here's the tagline. They said, no physician is racist. So how can there be structural racism in healthcare? Question mark. An explanation of the idea by doctors for doctors in this user-friendly podcast. So, you know, so again, that sounds, if we all know me, I'm a physician myself, and even I know that's nonsense. Like, we cannot sit here and act as if racism doesn't exist while we're attempting to talk about structural racism. So it's clearly, I think, a very kind of lazy attempt, uh, really, I think, a very ineffectual attempt to try to seriously discuss race. Well, I, I don't think it was really serious, but it was uh, attempted to be serious. Um, but once people saw the actual, you know, the, the actual promo byline and listened to it and they saw that it was really a very, you know, uh, uh, a very um, poor attempt at trying to explain a system uh, or a uh, uh, a, a concern that many millions of Americans have and many believe are responsible for increased death and, and morbidity amongst minority populations who are in the healthcare system. So this is very serious, I think, but unfortunately we don't have that same level of seriousness being displayed by some of these experts and so-called leaders. And it's unfortunate. So, you know, but again, this 60 minute podcast obviously wasn't very effective in breaking down any racism, anything. And it was kind of essentially laughed off the internet and, uh, you know, the back to the drawing board. So hopefully, guys, we can, um, you know, have a serious discussion about, you know, racism in the healthcare system um, and how that can be potentially addressed so that we can save lives. Because that's what it's about at the end of the day. Um, if there's something that potentially is causing increased death amongst certain groups of Americans, um, it should be explored. And if that includes, you know, un bias and racism and uh, the various, you know, behaviors amongst the healthcare staff, then I think that should be also explored. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, making sure everyone has uh, equal access to healthcare and gets equal treatment, I think, should be the, the bottom line. And we should all, you know, you know, strive for that as a clinician. That's clearly, you know, what I'm focused on. And I think the population as a whole uh, would like that to happen as well. So, again, very, very, um, you know, concerning uh, signs. But hopefully, you know, us talking about it, other people kind of talking about it will hopefully have or engender more discussions on the topic and lead to a better understanding amongst the various groups to help everyone figure out the best way to deal with this whole healthcare situation in America. So, all right, guys, that is the end of the show today. We're kind of went a little bit overboard, but I think that it's going to be hopefully a, a, a inter interesting uh, show for you guys. If you have any discussions, guys, don't fail to reach out. 
My name is Dr. Barry, uh, the host of the show. Reach out to me on Instagram, at DrBarryMD. Also, check me out on uh, social medias. And also, guys, do not forget to download the app, Apple Vibes TV app, the TV and radio, on your iPhone or your Google phone. Um, it's the bomb, yo. I'm telling you, I don't want to <laughs> get too unprofessional, but you're not going to regret it. So get that app today. You'll love it. Check us out next week. We got more hotness on the way. Great shows, great content upcoming. Um, be safe out there. Also, spring break. I know we talked about spring break and people leaving all, throwing all caution to the wind. Try at least be safe out there. You know, COVID is still a thing. And uh, that is all. It's your boy, Dr. B. I'm out. Peace. <laughs>